The series is entitled First Century Faith for the 21st Century. And I would have to say that, that in light of the last year and a half, we are much more like the first century than we have been in a very long time. The things that these Christians faced, the things that we are facing. Now, the first few weeks of the, of the new church that has just been indwelt by the Spirit of God in the day of Pentecost, uh, we've seen several thousand people uh, turn to Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. You have the Passover, so you have people from all over the Mediterranean rim. They've come from multiple countries. Peter preaches, 3,000 get saved. The Bible says then 5,000 are saved. That's just the men. They counted the men, so if they were married, then you have to double that number. If they had two children, you have to uh, double it again. So we have a very large church. We have a mega church here in Jerusalem, and they're just praising God. They're thrilled, but not everybody's happy, right? Not everyone's happy. The Bible says they, they're, they're, this was extremely upsetting to the Jewish leaders. The captain of the temple, the priests, the Sadducees, and even the Sanhedrin, and so the persecution so far has amounted to one overnight arrest of two apostles followed up with severe threats not to preach in the name of Jesus. Satan is quickly losing control over the situation. What he thought he had well in control with the crowd, the mob crying out for the blood of Jesus and his crucifixion, uh, what he thought was going to be a victory, it's now just unraveling because so many people are coming to salvation in Christ. And so he has dispatched his demons to inspire the Jewish leaders to stop this new sect from growing, but it keeps growing. We see tonight that when a church is spirit-filled when it is united uh, around the gospel. They cannot be stopped. And so he quickly changes tactics, and Satan, fallen Lucifer, personally gets involved himself in the attack. And so tonight I'd like you to see the contrast between a spirit-filled church and a selfish, prideful couple. And so let's stand as we see Satan's attacks as a lion and as a serpent. We pick up the text in chapter 4, verse 32. The multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common, and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation or the son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But, but a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira his wife sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, 
Why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? May we pray. Now, Lord, we have read your word. We know that these, these stories are historical events, that they happened exactly as the writer Luke recorded them. And you have put it in your holy Bible for us to, to learn, to understand, and then to be able to make application of, of your truth to our hearts and lives. And so, Father, tonight I pray that that we'd not be looking at the other person, but we'd be looking at our own heart, at the message you have for us about our character, about our tongue, about our motive, about the encouragement or lack of that we give to other people. So, Lord, may the spotlight of Scripture find its way upon our heart, and may we be open, allowing you to be able to do the spiritual work to change us, to make us more like Jesus. Now, Father, I pray that if there be anyone here or watching online and they're just not sure if heaven is their home, Father, I pray for the Spirit of God to be able to convict and convince and draw them to yourself. May they understand that, that, that faith needs to be a trust from their heart in Christ alone for salvation, believing that he died for our sins and rose again. And if it be your will to touch them and draw them to yourself to be saved, may you do so tonight. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We are warned as Christians many times that Satan will attack. He will attack God's people. God's word tells us what to do when Satan attacks. Not if he attacks, but when he attacks. We are to resist him, resist the devil, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. One thing is for sure, he has attacked, he is attacking, and he will continue to attack. Why? Because he is not a quitter. He's not a quitter. Sadly, Satan has, has more determination than many Christians that I know. Who will he attack? He will attack you. If you're married, he will attack your spouse. If you have kids, he will attack your kids. He will attack your parents. He will attack your friends. He will attack your church leaders. He will attack church leaders across the country and across the world. And he will attack our church. Satan's first attack against mankind began where? The garden, the garden of Eden, uh, when he deceived Eve and he lied to her. Hath God said? And then he, he distorted the word of God. Maybe he was jealous at the new special relationship that God had with the creation of Adam and Eve man and woman, a human being. Because the Bible says they were made a little lower than the angels, Hebrews 2, 7, that God, God said he made us in his own image. And possibly after his fall, there's a jealousy in Satan's heart. And so he comes and he does the subtle, deceptive serpent attack to our first parents. Now we find two very direct attacks in Acts chapter 5. Uh, we're going to see one of them tonight. So listen to 
to this warning that Paul gave to those who refused to forgive others. Do you realize that, that unforgiveness in our heart opens the door for satanic influence and satanic temptation? Here it is, 2 Corinthians 2.11. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. If you read the verse before, it is in the context of not forgiving others. So if you hold resentment, if you hold unforgiveness in your heart, then the Bible says you just gave Satan an advantage to be able to defeat you. What are his devices? What are his tactics? What are his traps? Uh, how does he appear? Well, Satan attacks as, as a roaring lion, and he attacks as a deceiving serpent. As a roaring lion, he devours, as Peter told us, as a deceiving serpent that Moses wrote about when he recorded Genesis chapter 3. So those are two of his most effective efforts, an all-out attack, an assault from the outside, the devouring lion, or planting a deceiving hypocrite on the inside. And so he used the outside attack in chapter 4. They arrested Peter and John. They gave threats. And they went back to the church. They had a wonderful prayer meeting. Look at chapter 4, verse 31. This is following his first assault. Chapter 4, verse 31. When they had prayed, the place was shaken, where they were assembled together. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. So Satan attacks, but they, the church prayed, and God responded with fresh anointing of his power, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit with even more boldness. And so I'm sure Satan began to scratch his head, thinking, well, that didn't work. That didn't work. I'm, I'm, I'm losing control. He's upset. He's mad. His attack from the outside failed. So now he switches back and forth from an attack on the outside to an, an attack on the inside. He will still attack on the outside many times in the book of Acts, won't he? In fact, his outward attacks of physical persecution will continue for the next 300 years, 10 major Roman persecutions where millions of Christians have died. The Apostle Paul was finally executed, but not before over a hundred churches dotting Asia Minor and the European continent. As the early church father Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is what? The seed of the church. And the more he persecuted, the more he persecuted, the church continued to grow and multiply into the millions. And so in the year 315 A.D., Satan again changed his tactic under Emperor Constantine. Christianity was legalized, and within 100 years, the Catholic Church was invented. This was much more effective in destroying the witness of the Christians and blinding people from the truth more powerful than persecution so we must always be on guard satan as a roaring lion satan as a deceiving serpent now we all have a choice to be like the spirit-filled church of acts 4 or to be like the selfish prideful couple of acts 5 so here we go the spirit-filled church is blessed by god verse 31 they were all filled with the holy spirit think about it everyone everyone that means the men, the ladies, the apostles, 
And it means Ananias and Sapphira. All means all, right? So how do you know when a church is spirit-filled? Well, first of all, they fulfill the two goals that we have to this day, give glory to God, fulfill the Great Commission. They were unified, they magnified in the community, and they multiplied. So notice the, the unity. Back up to chapter 2, chapter 2 and verse 44. And all that believed were together, and they had all things common. Chapter 2, verse 46. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple, temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Chapter 4, verse 32. And the multitude of them that believed were of, look at, look at it, one heart and one soul, neither said any of them that ought of the things which he possessed was his own. They had all things common. God creates a spiritual unity that is not man-made. It is not man-manufactured. We have people from all over in our church family, even here tonight, have people from, from different parts of Pennsylvania, different parts of the country, right? We have uh, people from different, different uh, locations of the world. Uh, we have... Uh, people that it's multi-generational we have younger we have older and how do you get everyone together to be able to do one purpose it's the spirit of god he puts it in our, our hearts to believe the bible believe the gospel believe the great commission now the church is a living organism but even living organism organisms must have organization so our body has a skeleton right it holds us together so our church needs organization to function the way God wants us to. Uh, they had unity in doctrine. They had unity in fellowship. They had unity in giving. They had unity in worship. And so we find they were united. They were unified. Secondly, they, they were magnified in the community. Verse 33, uh, with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And that means they're talking to people outside the church. Something new and exciting is happening, and it was because God is at work. Chapter 2, verse 47, they multiplied. They multiplied. Chapter 2, verse 47, praising God, having favor with all the people, the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. And we see that happening uh, again uh, and again. As people are trusting Christ, they're turning to the Lord of chapter 4 verse 4 how be it uh, many of them which heard the word believed the number of them was about 5,000 they keep growing and growing they're, they're multiplying they go from the 120 to the 3,000 to the 5,000 again you count women and children you're over 20,000 you say oh, I don't like big churches well then you wouldn't like the church Jesus started because uh, within a matter of weeks you have over 20,000 people they had spiritual unity but they also shared their stuff in common. And so the big question that some have is this communism. And so we find chapter 4, verse 34, Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of land or houses, sold them and bought the, uh, brought the prices of the things which were sold. This is not communism, political communism that is practiced today in some countries. This was a special time in history of the church, 
Overnight, the church grew by leaps and bounds. One reason they began selling their extra lands and houses is to support the Christians uh, being hospitable for those new Christians who had come from other lands. Remember Acts chapter 2? You have, what, 16, 17 different languages there that, that they spoke the word of God to, uh, the praises of God. And so they're coming from multiple nations. The nations are listed. When these people got saved, they didn't, they didn't leave. They're staying. They want to grow in their faith. They have no way to support themselves. And so the Christians open their homes up. Now, I don't believe they all sold their own homes that they lived in. I believe they sold extra land and extra homes because they would have to have a place uh, to live as well. And so what they're doing is they're caring for these new Christians that have come from different countries that had no way to support themselves. How is this different from the communism of Karl Marx and Lenin? This is voluntary. This was motivated by love. This was temporary. But we should have the same spirit of giving. When the church has a need, we should be willing to be like these Christians and to be able to, uh, to give and to be able to meet the need uh, that is uh, promoted by the Holy Spirit directing us. And so verse 33 to 35, this is what they did. They, they took land, houses, they sold them. They brought the money to the apostles uh, for distribution, to have the spiritual oversight and the actual, the, uh, uh, the, the, to, to direct uh, them to be able to meet the need appropriately. So the apostles are appointed to wisely direct the use of this money. So now... This is what's going on. Now the writer Luke introduces us to not a spirit-filled church, but a spirit-filled Christian. I love him. His name's Barnabas. And so let's look in verse 36. And Joseph, uh, who by the apostles, they gave him a nickname. We're not going to call you by your given name. We're going to give you a nickname. And the nickname is Barnabas, which, which means son of consolation. It means son of encouragement. He is a Levite. And a, uh, from the country of Cyprus. Now, for you who know your Old Testament really well, you should be asking the question, what question should you be asking? How does a Levite own land? I knew it was on the tip of your tongue, right? How does a Levite own land? Were they not prohibited from owning land? And so we have to figure out how, how this man uh, becomes a generous giver and he sells land and he brings his, his, the money from the proceeds to the local church, lays it down before the apostles and said, use it to meet the need. However you guys need to use it, just use it. So what are the possibilities here? Well, most likely it was land back in Cyprus, outside of Palestine, or maybe his wife owned it. Uh, Barnabas had a little land. He sold it, and he said, I'm going to sell it for God. And he gave the proceeds to God. He laid up treasure in heaven by this little task. But this most important thing is that God saw his heart, and God said, there's a man that I can use. And we will find him several times in the book of Acts. When Saul of Tarsus, the great persecutor, gets saved, he wants to join himself to the church in Jerusalem. They say, no, no, no. We know what that guy's all about. Uh, we think he's, he's uh, like a spy. He's just going to get in. We're all going to die. You know who it was? It was Barnabas. Put his arm around him, 
and brought him into the church and introduced him. And then Barnabas becomes uh, a key partner in the work of Christ with uh, the Apostle Paul on the first missionary journey. This is a, a man who, who went after the spiritual shipwreck of a guy named John Mark, his nephew. And when Paul said, we're done with this guy, uh, uh, Barnabas says, no, we're not. We're not. I, I see some potential. Yes, he messed up. Yes, he failed. But I see a diamond in the rough. And so he puts his arm around him, and he takes him on the uh, second missionary journey, not with Paul, but his own missionary journey. And we're so glad he did because, because he did that, we have the gospel of Mark. We have a gospel that is through the eyes of Peter, written by John Mark. We all can be like Barnabas. Everyone can't be a John or a Peter or Paul, but everyone here tonight can be a Barnabas. Everyone here tonight can be an encourager. Everyone here can have a ministry of encouragement. I want to ask you, has God given you some Barnabases in your life? Has he given you some Barnabases in your life? When you were a child, when you were a teenager, when you went to trade school or college or began work, as a new Christian, as in a new ministry. More importantly than that, is there someone you can become a Barnabas to? Is there someone that you can become a Barnabas to? I can look back at my life being saved at 15 and multiple, multiple uh, men have been examples to me, uh, some from a distance and some from up close and personal. But you know, I'm 61. It's my turn to be on the other side of that. It's my turn to be able to become the Barnabas. Did you know that your words of encouragement, your acts of kindness, could be the difference in someone going on for God or someone quitting on God? We see that with John Mark. So I challenge everyone here tonight. I want you to think right now, right now tonight, three people that you can become a Barnabas to this week. Three people that you already know that you can become a Barnabas to this week. It could be someone in your family. It could be someone you work with. And it could be a friend. You say, okay, well, what am I supposed to do if I'm going to be a Barnabas? What could I do to become a Barnabas? How can you well, let me, let me uh, back up here just a second. We should continually be a Barnabas to our family members. Husbands and wives, be a Barnabas, encourage each other. Parents and children, be a Barnabas, encourage each other. Employers, employees, be a Barnabas, encourage each other. Friend to friend, be a Barnabas, encourage each other. Church member to church member, be a Barnabas to encourage each other. So now how? How can you be a Barnabas to each other? Well, first of all, it's going to be with our words. With our words. Ephesians 4, 29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of what? Out of your mouth. Uh, but that it might be good to the use of edifying, that it might minister grace unto the hearers. Your words come out of your heart, and God says, I want your words to be edifying 
to be encouraging, to be a Barnabas. That's a command from God. So that's one way. Another is to write a note. Write a note. Now, you can do that several ways. You can do it through a text. You can do it through an email. Uh, you can do it the old-fashioned way. You know, you know it, it's, a, it's, it's a pen, and you turn it, you, you turn it on. You turn it on, and uh, then you get a piece of paper, and you write a note, and uh, then you can either slip it in their box, you can put it in the mail, uh, but it, uh, you could get a small gift, a small gift. And so a small gift can be something as, as, uh, as small as a candy bar. It could be as, as big and great as a bag of Reese's Pieces, all right? Uh, way better than M&M's, way better than a candy bar. Reese's Pieces, way to go. Okay, uh, or you could get maybe a, a little gift card from, a, from Wawa, Dunkin' Donut, or that, that other place, but then you'd have to get a big gift card because it's so expensive from that place. All right, so, uh, but a small gift and just a little encouragement. And you put a little note on it, a little piece of paper, and all you gotta do is say, praying for you today, and then you pray for them. Be a Barnabas. You say, oh, Pastor Wendell, it's such, it's such a petty thing you're talking about. No. It's a big thing I'm talking about. You see, it's the little acts of kindness that make the big impact. It's the little acts of kindness that make a big impact. And so, because Barnabas had the little acts of kindness, then he took a big step and, and sold some land, uh, and then he gave that, and then God said, man, I, this is the guy I want to use. This is the guy I want to bless. And he did. Now, in contrast to a spirit-filled church and a spirit-filled man, we now come, and I introduce you to a selfish couple. Everything's going great. And then you get to chapter 5, you turn the page, you turn the chapter, but, chapter 5, verse 1, but Ananias and Sapphira, certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife. Let's check out their character and see what we can learn from them. So let's start with saved. Are they, are they saved? Every indication we have from the text is that they are, they are saved. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, to be saved that means you have to ask Jesus to become your Lord and Savior. You have to pour contempt on all your pride, as the hymn writer said. You have to say, I can't get saved by baptism or sacraments. I can't get saved by being good. I can't get saved by, by, by uh, turning over a new leaf or being sincere. No, no, the way you get saved is by humbly asking Jesus Christ to forgive your sins. You're born again. They did it. Saved. Check baptized are they baptized check check every indication is that they are saved they're baptized church member check check uh, because the bible says they got saved they got baptized or added to the church acts 2 41 42 and it seems like they're a part of that spirit filled saved baptized church member tither a giver Check. Spirit filled. Now we're on a roller coaster. Yes. But now chapter 5, the answer is no. No. You see, they traded the spirit filled life of chapter 4 for the sinful, selfish life of chapter 5. How did it happen? I wonder. When they saw Joseph, who was then called Barnabas, 
they had this little twinge of jealousy, of envy. They must have begun to think something like this. You know, everyone likes Barnabas. I want everyone to like me. Everyone is impressed with Barnabas's gift of selling the land and giving the money to help others. I want to impress everyone by doing the same thing. Hey, Sapphira, you know that piece of land that we inherited from your grandpa? You remember that? I know there, there, there's not any buildings on it. How about we sell that, just like Barnabas? How about we sell that land, and we, we go down front uh, during the service when they take the offering, and we'll, we'll give it to the apostles, and we'll help the needy just like Barnabas did. And maybe they'll give me a nickname like they did Barnabas. But let's just say we're giving the entire profit, and let's just keep back part of, you know, maybe, how about we keep back a third, a third of the land, of the price. We'll give two-thirds. I mean, it's our money to give. We'll give two-thirds. How's that? She says, well, you know, my washer and dryer, they're getting kind of old. You sure could use a new chariot. That's a great idea. So let's sell it. Let's keep uh, one-third. Let's give two-thirds. Verse 2, chapter 5, verse 2. They kept back part of the price. His wife also, uh, she's privy to it. They brought a certain part, laid it at the apostles' feet. God is pleased that they would give. He is. He loves a cheerful giver. He is pleased that they would give, but he is displeased that they would lie about it. They lied in church. God is pleased with sacrifice. God is displeased with their lies. No matter how noble it was to give. And so look what Peter says. Verse 4, clearly the Spirit of God directing Peter to know this information that he could not know any other way. Uh, verse 3, Peter says to Ananias, Why has Satan, not one of the demons, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Ghost to keep back part of the price of the land? While, while it remained, was it not your own? Or, and after it was sold, was it not in your own power? Why hast thou conceive this plan this thing in your heart you've not lied unto men but you've lied unto God you've lied unto God my first year of Bible college I was required to memorize these two verses to have a biblical foundation to know that the Holy Spirit is God you lied to the Holy Spirit you lied to God so we know that that the uh, that we call him the third member of the Trinity the Holy Spirit is God and at this moment, they were filled. Now the Spirit still possessed the Spirit. They had quenched the Spirit, but they're filled with selfishness. They're filled with greed. They're filled with envy, jealousy. You say people in church can do that? Filled with envy, filled with jealousy, filled with greed, filled with selfishness. They coveted praise. Ananias means God is gracious. But he learned that God is holy. Sadly, it reminds us of the story of Achan in the book of Joshua, chapter 7. Achan, I saw, I coveted, I took, I hid, and God, God killed him. So Satan's attack moves inside the church. There's a lie, verse 1 and 2. In contrast to Barnabas, Satan influenced both Ananias and Sapphira. Satan's a liar. And as Christians... Satan cannot indwell us, 
but he, and he cannot take away our salvation, but he can influence us. And so he influences through media, through music, through TV, through advertisement, through pornographers, through the liquor industry. Even carnal friends can influence us. He appeals to our weakness. He appeals to our temptations. And they gave in to the sin. Now notice the punishment. Verse 5. Peter confronts him with the sin of lying, and God literally and physically strikes him dead on the spot. Verse 5. Ananias, hearing these words, fell down, gave up the ghost, his spirit, his soul, and great fear came on all them that heard these things. The young men arose, wound him up, carried him out, and buried him. That was common uh, for the Jewish people to, to bury on the same day, and that's what happened. Later, Paul would write about this kind of occurrence in 1 Corinthians 11. Some dishonored the Lord's table. Some were sick, and some slept. That is, they died. 1 John chapter 5, the apostle John calls this a sin unto death. It has a name in the Bible, the sin unto death. It's the death of a Christian. It is God spanking us so strong that he would rather have a believer in heaven than have them continue here on earth. And people wonder, does, does God still do this today the way he did it back then well clearly he doesn't do it exactly to the same degree and same intensity as he did in Acts chapter 5 because well because we're all here (laughs) thankfully it's not done in such a a degree that we find it here uh, because all you know well let's just say we're glad we're here tonight right we're glad glad for God's grace Same for Sapphira in verse 7. And it was about the space of three hours. Look how specific. Three hours later, she must have got home from her part-time job shopping. When his wife, uh, it was a long day at Costco. Uh, When his wife, uh, not knowing what was done, came in, and and she was surprised. My husband's not here, but, but the apostle Peter is here. Peter answered and said, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. Uh, Peter said, How is it that you have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door and shall carry thee out. She fell down straightway at his feet, yielded up the ghost. The young men came in, found her dead, carried her forth, and buried her by her husband. Oliver Wendell Holmes said, Sin has many tools. But a lie is a handle which fits them all. Why such severe punishment, severe consequences? Because God loves his church, and he brought a severe punishment at the beginning of this new period of salvation history. The name Sapphira means beautiful, but her sin made her character ugly. And I believe that if Ananias and Sapphira had, had, after they had sinned, if they would have judged themselves if they would have asked God to forgive them and receive cleansing, even as David did after his great sin, the outcome would have been different. Because in 1 Corinthians, to those people that died in the Corinthian church, he said, if we judge ourselves, we should not be, we should not be judged. We would have the penalty of the punishment of the chastisement. Verse 11, chapter 5, verse 11. And great fear came upon all the church, I guess so. (laughs) I guess so. Make sure you tell the truth. 
I don't want Peter knocking on my door. Did you say this? Great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. That's outside the church. That's the, the neighbors. Can you see the next door neighbors as they carry out Ananias' body? What happened? Can you see three hours later as they carry out Sapphira? What happened? And so what you have is a drop in first-time visitors on the next Sunday. <laughs> Whoa! I, I think I'm going to wait before I visit that church. People said, you better not go over there unless you are serious about God. Filled with the Spirit or filled with self. Choose wisely. We only have one life. But we live it one day at a time. So, here we go. Choose wisely. Let's be a Barnabas. Let's find three people. Three people. Do you have some names? A family member? A friend? A co-worker? And you're going to be a Barnabas this week to them. It might take you two minutes. It might take you 12 minutes. But it's going to be an investment. God's going to use you to bless someone else. And only eternity will know what the act of Barnabas will do. And then we'll do it again next week. And then the next week. And then, and then maybe you could have the reputation of a Barnabas that we have in our midst. And that is Pastor Ron Colton. He is our model Barnabas. I say, go and do that likewise. Follow his example. Father, thank you, Lord, for tonight, for the word of God, uh, for the Barnabas that we find in Acts 4, for the Barnabas that came alongside Saul of Tarsus, the new Christian, for the Barnabas that came alongside John Mark. Uh, thank you for the Barnabases we have here in our own church. But Lord, I pray, I pray tonight, we who are saved, that we would become the Barnabas to others. I pray if there be one here that knows not Christ, oh God, may they not leave this worship center until they have received Jesus as their very own. With our heads bowed, with our eyes closed, I want to ask you tonight, as we have this invitation prayer, Are you thankful for the Barnabases that God brought to you? Will you decide, I will be an encourager upon others. I will let God use me to edify, to build up, to encourage. And if you have a relationship with a dear friend, faithful are the wounds of a friend, to come alongside to guide them away from a sinful path to a spiritual path. Lord, help us now. Help us now to, to walk in your ways, to be a Barnabas, to be an encourager. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 12 today. Uh, my message is entitled, Experience God by Knowing and Doing God's Will decisions every day we make so many decisions i mean some are big and some are small 
Uh, some are good, some are not so good. How can we make good decisions? Well, I am certain that during my life I have made, by the grace of God, many good decisions, but I have also made quite a few bad decisions. Now, the good decisions I, that I've made, I give God uh, the credit for guiding me and with the help of other godly people. The bad decisions I've made, well, usually completely my own fault. But there in your notes, you see that someone said, the only thing worse than making bad decisions is not learning from making bad decisions. So how about you? Are you learning from those decisions that you make, uh, sometimes the wrong one? Do you generally make good decisions? Do you generally make godly decisions? Or are you constantly making poor choices, bad choices? Would you please stand with me as I read from Romans 12, where we find some great wisdom from God, and the Apostle Paul, he gives us the, the so what after 11 chapters of solid teaching, 11 chapters of theology and doctrine. The question now is, so what? What does all of this mean to me? And the answer is found here in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Would you look at it with me today? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. May we pray. Father, thank you now for this time to open your word, to be able to hear literally from heaven. We pray that you would guide us, that we might experience you more by knowing and doing your will in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to find out if you're in a cooperative mood this morning. May I ask you to do something? Will you do it? Okay, so here we go. I'd like everyone, everyone here to close your eyes. Would you close your eyes? Okay, the other eye, right? Yep, close your eyes. Every eye closed. Now take your finger, your index finger, and point it to the ceiling. Right hand up, right hand up, pointing to the ceiling. Now your eyes are closed. I can see if you are cooperating. Looks like we have a, a, a lot of cooperation today. All right, so now while you're pointing to the ceiling with your eyes closed, I now would like to ask you to point in the direction where you think north is. So right now, point north. So, so don't point in the ceiling anymore. Point, you know, left or right, forward or behind. Don't, don't point in the ceiling. Left or right, north. Where do you think north is? And then keep holding your hand at the direction you think is north. Now, keep pointing. Open your eyes. Now, look around and look where everybody's pointing. All right. You can put your hands down now. You know what that just looked like? It just looked like a lot of Bible studies across America. Everybody has an opinion, but who's right? So it is in life. Oprah has her opinion. Dr. Phil has his opinion. Well, who's right? Which way is north? 
If I said, I just got some news that there has been a lethal chemical leak in this area. And unless you go north immediately, you're going to die. Wouldn't you want to go north? You say, but which way do I go? Because there's clearly some disagreement about which way is north. And so I think what you would want to do is you come to the crossroads. I mean, your life depends upon it. You got to go north. Well, my name is Pastor Wendell, and I'm here to help. I have a compass. And this compass will tell us which way north is. And if there was a chemical leak and you had to go north, this is going to save your life. Because the compass will tell us which way is north. It cannot lie. You see, it's controlled by a law, a magnetic law. Uh, day or night, rain or shine, the compass will always show you which way north is. So, so since you want to live, let's see which way north is. So I'm going to take the compass out. We're going to look at it. And north is right over there. <laughs> okay. All right, so if you would look up uh, right above Lisa's head, you see that speaker on the wall? From this point, that is, that's north. That's the way north is. And it doesn't matter where you go in the world, this compass will tell you where magnetic north is. That cool? That's cool how God made the, the earth like this giant magnet. They don't understand it in science, but it's just an amazing thing. And may I say to you that even more amazing than that compass is the Bible that you hold in your hand. The Word of God for your life tells you which way north is, which way you should go, how you should live, how you should walk. It'll guide you. It's like, like turning on the light. It shows you the way to go that will protect you in life. You never have to ask. You never have to ask, God, do you want me to kill someone? Don't have to ask that. North, God, should I commit adultery? God, should I steal or lie or cheat or covet? I don't have to ask God that question because he's already said, this is the way north, this is the way to life. I don't have to ask God, should I get baptized? Should I give? Should I tithe? Should I share my faith? Should I forgive? Should I forgive again? I don't have to ask that because God says, North, life, this is the way to go. This is the way to live. This is the way to talk. He's already commanded us on these things. So let's, let's start with this question. Does God really have a perfect will for my life? Does he care? Does he care where I go, what I do, who I marry? Does he care? And Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 says, yes that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. God has a perfect will for your life. Here in Romans 12, God declares that there is a perfect will for your life in three statements about that will. God's will is good. It is good. It's good in God's sight, but it's good for you too. God's will is acceptable. That means, that means it's, pleases God and God's will is perfect I mean this is the best choice for your life to be able to follow God's will the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he God delights in your way 
when you follow His direction. So God cares about you. He cares about the big decisions that you make in your life. He's not left us in the the dark uh, to know what to do. Now, here on page two of your notes, I have five steps to prepare your life to recognize God's perfect will. Now, I know these are familiar to some of you, but it might be new to some of you as well. Romans chapter 12 gives us five steps to prepare to know God's perfect will. Here it is, step number one, surrender to God. Surrender to God. Present your body as a living sacrifice to God. Now, this is interesting, living sacrifice. If you were in the first century, what is a sacrifice? A sacrifice would be a what? A a dead a dead animal, right? That's what a sacrifice is. I, I mean, the Jews did this, the Gentiles did this, the pagans did this, everyone, everyone did this. When they made a sacrifice, they killed an animal and they put the meat on the altar. In the Old Testament, animals were put to death as substitutes. They did it in the morning and the evening. They did it every week. They did it every month. They did it every year. The substitute in place of the people. You see, the animal sacrifices pointed to the cross. Because of Jesus' ultimate sacrifice on the cross, God stopped animal sacrifices. When Jesus showed up, John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God, the sacrifice, the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. And so he stopped all animal sacrifices. He even allowed the temple to be destroyed in 70 AD. In fact, he predicted it. Jesus predicted in Matthew 24, verse 2, this temple will be destroyed. When it was destroyed, sacrifices stopped. Now, in the New Testament, the only worship that is acceptable to God is for us to offer ourselves as this living sacrifice. What does that mean? It means we surrender ourselves completely to God's control. So here's the question. Is there any area of your life that you have not surrendered to God? Your family, your money, your job, your future, your entertainment. Have you surrendered? Second step is submission to God. We are told that that this is holy and acceptable to God. God calls us to live a holy life. Now, one of the best descriptions you're going to find in all the Bible on how to live a holy life is found in Romans 6, verse 13. Neither yield ye your members, that are your eyes, your, your ears, your hands, your feet, neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield, surrender yourselves to God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. And so what he is saying is, yield yourselves to God means give your eyes, your hands, your tongue, your feet to do righteous things, to do righteousness and not to sin. It's not what your body looks like. It's what you do with your body. You see, you are not your body. You are a soul and a spirit, and you have a body, and with that body, you're supposed to love God, love and serve others. And since God has saved you from the penalty of sin, which is eternal hell, it is a reasonable request for you to serve God. Look at the end of verse 1. This is your reasonable service. Look what God did for you. And so we should serve him. Question. 
Is there any area of your life that you are not currently obeying God? Number three, resist the world. Be not conformed to this world. Be not squeezed into the mold of worldliness. Resist the pressure of worldliness. Now, Paul, Paul is confronting a problem that they're having. These Christians are they're bowing down to the beliefs, the values, the spirit of the age. It happened in the first century. Oh, but it's happening in the 21st century, isn't it? Isn't it? Uh, many churches are caving to the pressures of whatever the media is pushing. If the media is pushing this agenda today, then that's what the church needs to do. If the media is pushing a different agenda five months ago, that's what the church is supposed to do. No, 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 we're not. You see, worldliness is not just what's come out of Hollywood. Worldliness is is the beliefs, the values. It's the spirit of the age against God. And so let's let let God's word and God's ways and God's truth, let's let, let that be the magnetic influence upon us, not the world. Question, right now, are you more worldly minded? And we could add the word worried in there. Are you worried? Are you worldly minded or are you spiritually minded? Number four on page three, renew your mind with God's word renewing your mind Paul says that is saturate your thoughts with God's word the reason we are you know the reason that we are to to consider God's word as truth the reason we're supposed to do that is because God's word is truth all right Uh, that's the way it is Uh, you can say okay there's this chemical leak I'm gonna go north but I think north is that way you're wrong you're wrong You've got to change your belief. You have to change your understanding to match the Word of God. And the Word of God is say, go this way. You have a choice. Renew your mind with God's Word by believing truth. And one of the best ways to do that is fill your heart and mind with Christian music. You know, Christian music will help you to think thoughts about God. And so you have to make a choice to saturate your mind with God's truth. Question, do you take time to read God's word every day? Uh, Do you take time to meditate upon what you read? You know, social media uh, can be used good or bad. We have the opportunity to use it for good. We have the opportunity to take what what we learn, what challenges us, what inspires us, and we take it, we can share it with the world. Number five, choose to walk in God's perfect will. It's one thing to know it. It's another thing to live it out. It is good. It is acceptable. It's perfect. Decide to do it. Don't be just a hearer. Be a doer. Questions. Do you believe you are in God's perfect will right now? Do you believe you are in God's perfect will right now? If so, God's Holy Spirit will confirm this in your conscience and heart. How does he do it? He gives you peace. He gives you a perfect peace. He gives you a peace that passes all understanding. He gives you joy. He gives you great joy, full joy. So you can know God's will for your life with certainty on the major decisions of life. So let's define it. What is God's will? What does it mean, the term God's will? Well, really it means three different things. And so most Christians will use the term God's will and they'll refer to one of three different things. Number one is God's sovereign will. You know, nothing happens 
outside of the sovereign will of God. We don't know what's going to happen in the next hour or the next day or the next week or the next year, but God does. He, he already knows what's going to happen. That's his sovereign will. And so when you look back, if God allowed it, doesn't mean that he caused it. Doesn't mean that it made him happy. If God allowed it to happen, that's part of his sovereign will. You might say to a friend, maybe they lost a close friend themselves. Maybe they lost a relative. Say it was a tragic accident. Maybe you said it. Maybe someone said it to you. Oh, this must be a very difficult time for you. And yet it's a comfort to know that nothing can happen unless God allows it to happen. You know, sometimes it's just best not to say anything. <laughs> it's just best not to say anything. Sometimes when our friends and our family and our coworkers, if they're suffering and they're grieving, they don't need a sermon. They need a friend. They need a hand to hold they need someone just to cry with them. You know, when we look back at the past, we can say, this is God's sovereign will. If it already happened, God allowed it. Doesn't mean he caused it. Doesn't mean he approved it, but it's his sovereign will. God's moral will, the second one. Another situation, you could be speaking to a Christian friend and maybe they want to marry an unbeliever and you're talking with them and you have a deep friendship with them and, and you would warn her and say, if you marry him, you'll be violating God's will. That's referring to God's moral will. And then there's God's individual will. Finally, you might be talking to a friend and they're considering a college or a career change and you ask, do you believe this is God's will for your life? Referring to God's individual will. And so there you see three different aspects of God's will. Now in one sense, in one sense, every command of God is God's will for us. Is that right? I mean, lots of commands in the Bible, especially the New Testament. Every command is God's will for us to do. But in the Bible, in the New Testament, there are six times God says, this is my will. And that makes those statements significant for us to highlight today. So here we go. Six things God says are his moral will for all people. I mean, all people, all times, all places. What does God say in the Bible is his will for all people? First of all, it is God's will for you to be saved. It is God's will for you to be saved. You say, oh, but I think, it doesn't matter what you think. It's what, what God says. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. All should come to salvation. That is God's will. That is God's desire. So we teach our children the song in junior church. Jesus loves the little children. All the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves what? The little children of the world. Paul wrote, who will have all men to be saved and come unto the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2, 4. God wants you to become a Christian. That is his will. That is his desire. Oh, but pastor, I was, I was baptized as a baby. Oh, pastor, I, I've always been a Christian. No, you weren't. No, you weren't. You need to come to Christ. You need to be saved. It is God's will. Letter B, 
It is God's will for you to be spirit-filled, to be spirit-filled. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Okay, what is it? What's the will of the Lord? Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, I don't know what you believe about alcohol, but I know what God believes. Uh, He says it is never God's will for you or anyone else to be drunk. Is that right? It's what it says. But rather, it is God's will for you to be so in love with God, so in love in following Him that He controls you, and we call that Spirit-filled. We call that being Spirit-controlled. How many of you have heard that the airlines are now banning a particular beverage on the planes? What are they banning? They're banning alcohol. Southwest and American Airlines, they are now banning serving alcohol on flights in economy class because, why? Why? Because of an increased rise in violence in 2021, and it's going to go all the way into 2022, this ban. (laughs) Prohibition is back. I mean, Al Capone would turn over in his grave. Prohibition is back on the plains. There have been some 455 instances of violence and altercations because of drunk passengers. I almost was tempted to show you a video of some of the fights, but it's like, look it up yourself, all right? Look it up yourself. Alcohol makes airline passengers unruly. I have a booklet entitled Alcohol, Eight Questions Every Christian Should Ask. You can go to the blog, scottwendell.com backslash books, and you can download it, you can read it. Now, I'm not looking for you to get in arguments with people. I just want you to know you need to be equipped how to be able to answer people uh, so that you might be able to help them. All right, so here we go. It is God's will to be saved, to be spirit-filled. It is God's will for you to be saying thanks, to say thank you, to have a grateful heart. In everything, give thanks. Why? This is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So are you a complainer or are you a thanker? Is the cup half full? Is the cup half empty? Do you focus on the problem or the solution? Is this church unfriendly Or do you show gratitude to Jesus Christ by greeting people you do not know and letting them feel the love of Christ in this place? I can tell you how many times I I would meet a visitor and then I I would say to them, have you met John? Have you met Sue? And they hadn't. They're sitting right beside them. And so I introduce them and they they start chatting and they say hello. Uh, It was, uh, I know what it's like to pastor a small church for a long time. And so we, we grew from, from zero to 21 in six months and to 90 and after five, five and a half years. And we moved into the first building and, and we, uh, we grew uh, to 180 in, in just an, another 12 months. And, and so everyone knew everyone and, and uh, everyone knew when a visitor showed up and they were very warm to them. And, and that was the most common, common uh, comment after the preaching was the best preaching I've ever heard in my life. No, no. Uh, the best, uh, it's such a friendly church. So I would often say when I would visit someone after they would come to church, I'd say, so what was your impression of the church family? 
And, and it never happened to me in seven years as a pastor. And this guy looked at me and he says, man, it's a, such an unfriendly church. I said, you gotta be kidding. He said, no, it's an unfriendly church. I said, you were sitting next to another visitor. He said, you had to be. So I asked him where he was sitting and who he was, and he described it. Sure enough, he was sitting next to a visitor. So this guy came to church. Uh, it was in the first building. It was over there towards the sound, sound, uh, sound booth that we had. And uh, this guy sits down, who's a visitor, and he sits by another guy who's a visitor. And so this guy, this visitor, thinks this is a church member. And this guy who's a visitor thinks that's a church member. And so they don't talk to each other. And they both conclude, unfriendly church. All right, so we got to work at this. You know what Jesus said? By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, that ye have what? Love one to another. And so if you are sitting next to someone you don't know, Ray, do you know Larry? Larry, do you know Ray? You do now. Okay. So I want you to, you meet someone before you leave today, right? Brother Cooper, do you know Miss Cooper? <laughs> <laughs> so, so this is what we do We have grateful hearts And grateful hearts shows gratitude And that shows joy And it shows love to others It is God's will It is God's will Let's go on uh, It is God's will that you be sanctified That means to be set apart That means to live a holy life This is the will of God Even your sanctification That you should abstain from fornication God created sex for married people i mean married to each other all right married to each other one study revealed that couples who live together before marriage are 48 percent more likely to divorce later this is significant considering the fact that more than half of first marriages are preceded by cohabitation here's a new study by pew research a new study states that couples who are married are more satisfied than those who are cohabitating. Sanctification. It's God's will. Notice also, it is God's will, letter E, that you be willing to suffer for Christ. It is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Oh, don't we see this happening this is increasing all over the world. The persecution in the Middle East, in Africa, uh, now even in North America. And then submitting to authority. It is God's will to be submitting to authority. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, to the king, to the governor. It is the will of God that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Obey authority unless they directly ask you to disobey God. So we live, live under the higher principle. We ought to obey God rather than man. Yes, there are many things that the moral will of God does not reveal to us. You'll eventually have to decide where to live and what school to go and do you, do you go for further education, what church to join, uh, who to marry, uh, what ministry to serve in, what car to buy, and many, many smaller decisions we make every day. But you start here. You start with these six commands that are the will of God. Be saved. It is God's will to be spirit-filled, to be sanctified, to be saying thanks, 
to be willing to suffer, to submit to authority. And then, then be yourself, all right? Be yourself, because if you, are, if you are following God, He'll give you the desires of your heart. Next week, we will look at how God guides us to His individual will. But first, we must be obedient to God's moral will. And so Paul says, I beseech you, brethren, present your bodies a living sacrifice to God. Why? God's moral will is good. It's good. It is, it, it, it is acceptable. It's pleasing to God. It is perfect. I had a family member uh, write me this week, and they said, I am living my, my dream life following God. Is that the kind of attitude you have? That you are thrilled to be alive, to love God, and to serve others. Is that the attitude? This life is good, it's acceptable, it's pleasing to God. There in your notes, the very first step for you, for you to experience God is to be saved. It is God's will for you to come to Christ today. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the clear teaching of the scriptures. And I pray that each one of us would have a desire to please you, to surrender to you, to follow the good, the acceptable, the perfect will of God in our life. Heads about, eyes are closed. You'd say, Pastor, I, I believe I'm saved. I believe I've taken that first step. There was a time in my life that I committed my life to Jesus Christ. I can testify to you today that I am born again. I'm a child of God. I, I, God has given me assurance in my heart that when I die, I'll go to heaven. If that's you this morning, you're not ashamed to be called a follower of Christ. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. Would you simply raise your hand as a testimony all over this congregation? You may put your hands down. Thank you. Thank you. I ask you today, would you like to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior? Maybe you just raised your hand, but in your heart you know you don't have assurance of God's salvation. Today, you've heard very clearly of God's love. Jesus died for you and rose again. You can receive him as your Lord and Savior today. Turn from your pride, turn from your selfishness, trust Christ not baptism, not sacraments, Christ alone. If you sense the Spirit of God tapping, tugging on your heart, would you just say yes to God? It's not about joining the church. It's not about getting baptized. It's about you and your relationship with the living God, the living Savior. If you'd like to do that today, I'd like to lead you in that salvation prayer. My prayer won't save you, but you can believe, you can trust you can receive Christ right where you're seated. Be the greatest day of your life. It is God's will for you to trust him today. Simply raise your hand, anyone at all. I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Just hold your hand up high for a moment. Anyone at all, just slip it up for a moment. I'll lead you in this salvation prayer. You can call upon the Lord as your Savior. Anyone at all. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Krista, may I ask you, 
Are you surrendering to God? Are you submitting to God? It's not about a church. It's not about a rule. It's about a relationship. It's about love. And the more you love God, the less you will love selfishness, sin. It's a surrender. I'd like to ask Pastor Matt to sing at this time as he sings this song of invitation. May it be your prayer to God that you would surrender all. Father, we come into your presence. We ask you to do this transforming work in our hearts and lives that we would surrender to you, that it's good for us to surrender to you, to submit to you, to follow you, and that as we do so, we can also bless others. So, Father, I pray today if there's anyone just holding on to that thing in their life that they need to let go, God, give them grace, give them repentance. Give them power. Give them boldness to choose to walk in your way. Thank you for your power. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness that washes us whiter than snow. We praise you today in Jesus' name.